The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts, John and Steven. Thank you, this is Caffeinated Comics. I'm your host, John Clark. Big news in the comic book world. We lost Denny O'Neill, one of the greatest writers to ever grace comic books. Uh, we'll be talking about him in a little bit, but first... Diamond and DC have separated. Diamond is the main comic book distributor in the industry, and DC will not be a part of that. People are nervous, and people were already nervous for a variety of reasons, so we decided to talk about that. I got uh, Daniel Romero, who used to manage Camaro's Comics, and of course, Stephen Brown, who used to own Camaro's Comics. I used to work at a comic book store. I used to publish books through Diamond, so we'll talk about what that means to all of us. There was one big story we were we'd been meaning to get to in the last two weeks, and it kept accelerating. So there's lots to talk about, and then another story happened at the same time. So this is actually a comic book topical podcast once again. Our first one, like I, I, I don't think it's been that in uh, I don't know probably since quarantine. But the big news is that um, DC has left Diamond, and people are losing their minds. Now we have on this call. Uh, Dan Romero, who uh, is the first time. This is also our first time with multiple Zoom people. Oh, yeah. Which is really cool. Um, So, uh, But Danny worked at Camaro's Comics, and Stephen owned Camaro's Comics and worked at 10th Planet. I worked at Bulletproof Comics. Um, uh, Stephen and I, we've all worked on comic books. I have published comic books through Diamond. So I feel like we there's a lot of perspectives coming in. So what are you guys – how are you guys feeling about this first? And foremost I mean conflicted uh, is probably the best way to put it because um, it's sort of a notorious thing I think for comic shops in general to have a poor relationship with diamond distributors yeah. <laughs> um, to say the least um, so the move away I think is a positive one it's it's less about the why and more of the how DC did it. I think that is going to be the really big problem, um, at least in the short term. Um, but yeah, I, I could go on and on about that. I don't know how you're. That's why you're here, Danny. Go on and on about. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll let Steve like get a an opinion in too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think I mostly agree. I was never uh, thrilled with Diamond uh, when I run this shop, and I know. Uh, all the different stores I know I find me a store owner that's thrilled with diamond and you know what I mean it's like that's gonna be a rare thing um if you're a top account yeah exactly it's like very few people are happy with diamond they're essentially monopoly but there's no such thing as monopoly on a distributor so they're allowed to be right um so I agree that I think um expanding the distributors is great. The criticism that I've been reading about is that the distributor that Diamond or that DC is now going with um, doesn't have the infrastructure to distribute comics largely across the country and at all overseas. So I'm interested to see what DC's overseas, like what percentage of their market share is overseas comics. But apparently this company that they've gone with has zero infrastructure to distribute comics overseas. So, I mean, that hurts the industry overall. And then I think the same idea is that for comic book stores, DC is your second biggest uh, company, right? So it's just like the market share is, you know, it's the second biggest one. And it's going to impact every store owner's diamond discount when they no longer are ordering because it's all uh, percentage based it's how much right. stuff you're ordering when you remove dc from that equation i don't know any store that isn't going to see a um a drop in their uh discount essentially from diamond and comic book stores live and die in the margins 
uh, their profit margins. So, I mean, that's going to affect the profit margins of the industry as a whole, an industry that is already on the precipice of the quarantine because these are all small businesses. The PPE um, program is out of money at the end of this month. So any business, any comic book store that was able to secure the Paycheck Protection Program, that money's expired at the end of this month. And I don't know of any uh, continuation of that program and how many businesses are going to be able to get through it. So uh, it's, uh, and this is a DC issue, right? This is Time Warner doing this. Yeah, yeah. This is not even Time Warner. This is AT&T. Right. Yeah. It's when AT&T and Time Warner a lot has changed and that's yeah. one of the things is uh as i was reading more about this at&t does not like the fact that one distributor has a monopoly on the industry and i think what they're trying to do with this ucs lunar sure they don't have the infrastructure but i think they're thinking they can build the infrastructure right. this is sure exactly it- what happened in the mid 90s when marvel bought heroes world and they almost bankrupted the entire industry. So, you know, clearly yeah. Yeah, it's, learning it's, from it created a situation past. where Diamond would be the only one standing. But, but you know what's funny, too, is that, like, again, because I, what I will say right off the bat is I 100%, like, it, it, and it's actually probably kind of controversial. And, like, anytime I've seen someone make this point, they just get shouted out of conversation. So I don't talk about it a lot. But... I actually 100% understand why DC is doing what they're doing in terms of like a business decision. So if you think about, like I was doing a little bit of research um, the this past week for like when we're, we were going to talk today. So AT&T Warner in 2019 did a little over $180 billion in revenue, right? DC Comics was around $300 million of that. So that's less than 0.2% of their total revenue. That's just the publishing or is that the licensing from the characters, which is- That's just their publishing. That's just the comic books. So, you know, like Marvel has been using Walmart and dollar stores and Five Below and whatever for a long time, but their purpose has always been to liquidate because- you know, they're basically still top dog in terms of market share. Um, You know, their incentive variant programs, as much as retailers hate them, they continue to order them and they, it's still funding them well enough. DC was using like Walmart and all this stuff to basically use them as test markets. They've been planning this for a long time. Well, like the hundred page um, comics. Right. Yeah. The giants. And Tom and, King were doing. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. They year. use top talent for exclusive stories. You can only get at Walmart. That was very you know. frustrating. Yeah. Um, well, but, and a lot of that. Found a Batman book and stick it at a Walmart. Well, they ended right, up. Right. Or Tom King. Up, and yeah. they ended up reprinting those as Batman universe and Superman yep. up, up, up and away. Yep. And, and, you know, so you do stuff like that. They've been doing DC Zoom and Inc., which is all direct to trade releases um, so that those release around the same time in the actual book market as they do the comic book market. So um, Comicron was talking about how, you know, just a couple of years ago, the, the book channel part of the market, like just regular bookshops, Barnes and Noble, whatever, was catching up so fast to the comic book market. So in 2018, book channels alone were doing 465 million in revenue. Comic stores did 510 million. So if you consider within just the past like 10 years or so of bookshops starting to actually have a full graphic novel section, a full manga section, like that's pretty fast growth. Yeah. And so yeah. they're looking at it like, why are we not just going directly through them? Who cares about single issues? That makes us nothing. The, the main, they're not going to let go of the brands because Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman are going to make them a ton of money sure. on movies and cartoons and toys and whatever. But they're basically just saying like, we just don't care who built, who got us to that point. You know, right. who helped us to actually share these characters and share the stories and get people to care about these people, um, yeah, these characters, whatever. Reading or maybe it was watching uh, an interview Jeff Johns did, and they were talking about this same kind of idea of basically how Warner Brothers looks at 
DC Comics, like the comic books going to comic book stores because it's such a small market share of Warner Brothers profit that it's basically like market research and uh, generating ideas. The idea being is that write it off as a loss. You know, they're not going to make any money publishing comic books. You know, if they break even, great, right? And then the idea is that those, that's what generates new content that they can then turn into movies, television projects. You know, it's like what movie or, you know, TV show or anything that's based on comics that isn't a comic isn't pulling from the comics. Right. Not just characters, but names, material, storylines, you know, this kind of stuff. But from what I've heard lately is that's always the way Time Warner ran that. And I've heard that same story. Um, what's changed is AT&T doesn't. So AT&T is looking at the bottom line of the publishing in a way Time Warner never did. Time Warner was like, hey, uh, and I think that happened in the 90s, like uh, was when Warner Brothers was making all the Batman films. Originally in 89, they shopped Batman everywhere because Michael Luslan had the rights himself. Right. Got them from DC Comics and he was going around and uh, I think it was Peter Goober who was like, hey, wait, we own the publishing company. Why aren't we making the movie? So for a while, they didn't even care about that. Right. And then when all they were making was Batman in the 80s and 90s, but Batman was the biggest thing going. And then the animated series was huge. And that's when Batman toys would never come off shelves. There'd always be something. They did look yeah. at it as research and development. And yeah, you watch Dark Knight Rises and you go, oh, there's a little bit of No Man's Land in there. And Chuck Dixon gets a check. Like, sure. they feel like that goes into the billion dollars. But from what I've heard about since the AT&T merger, they're looking at everything, every single right. level. Well, Why are we spending on this? Why are we spending on this? And to see them putting all this money into a distributor that they don't own, who then dictates the terms of distribution. Right. Well, at- and, and the funny part too. So there, I mean, there's a ton of problems with how they did this whole thing. Like just not having transparency, how quickly they did it. Um, the, the timing, frankly, with COVID and everything else going on, but like, it's just, there, there was a post going around on Facebook that I thought was really like, it just said it so well. And it was like, just morbidly funny. It was basically saying, um, it's as if Hasbro, uh, sold, it was like Hasbro is selling their toys to Walmart and Target has to buy them from Walmart in order to stock them. <laughs> like, in which case Target would be like, nah, <laughs> that's right. not happening. Um, right. And once a company gets big enough, they really start to try to own the entire chain. Right. And that's, that's why Marvel overreached in the 90s. They were banking everything they had on uh, the comic sales at the time. On Jim Lee being on X-Men and Todd McFarlane being on Spider-Man, selling millions of copies. They thought they... Ike Perlmutter, who bought them in the 80s, thought he could build an empire out of that. And then things like the Toy Biz figures and the Fox animated series kind of helped that, but it only went so far. Now, sure. Marvel is owned by Disney. And so I'm surprised Disney isn't doing the same thing to Diamond. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this was the same kind of fear, right? When Disney bought Marvel, because yeah. it's this mega corporation like AT&T, that they would come in and dictate and I was remember owning a store at this time being worried, like, well, what the fuck are they going to do with characters like Deadpool or Wolverine, who are popular characters that maybe don't fit into the Disney mold. And they did what any company who knows what they're doing should do is let the company that knows and understands the industry run the company. The history of comics is a long fraught history of people who don't understand comics trying to dictate how the industry should move and fucking it up and almost bankrupting it generation after generation after generation. I'd, I'd say every 10 years. Yep. Just about. I mean, it's, yep. it's you know, it, the, the smart thing Disney did, the smartest thing they did when they bought Marvel was they let Marvel be Marvel. They didn't come in. They didn't right. have a bunch of people trying to. Con- they didn't change the content, but. Right. They right. let it go. And, you know? and but you... little by little, they're starting to control more of the means of production. Disney Plus has been a huge hit for them. They're it's starting a little... to generate content for that, which they don't need a network for, even though they own one. It's only been a little bit, though, because if you even think about the MCU, for example, you know, Ike Perlmutter used to be way more, um, way more involved, I guess you could say, with the process until Kevin Feige was like, I can't do what I need to do to make y'all all this money if he keeps 
fucking around. Right. And so they and finally were doing, like, okay, Ike, you need to go away. <laughs> and he was doing things like holding up contract negotiations for Robert Downey Jr. Right. For, for Infinity War. Like after he was a proven commodity, Ike Perlmutter was still like, I don't, I don't want to pay him. And eventually yeah. Bob Iger is like, no, we're going to pay him. <laughs> so yeah, you yeah. Just, <laughs> you, you need to go sit down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. I, yeah, I think uh, going back to the idea of like who has loyalty to Diamond, um, the counter argument I've seen so far of like this is a terrible idea. Eric Stevenson, publisher of Image, called it a psychopathic decision. And yeah. the argument is, oh, Diamond is the lifeblood of comic book stores and you're, you're killing the lifeblood of comic book stores. Stephen, as you said, like um, taking DC out of the equation fucks with discounts. Diamond will yep. have to react. Maybe they lower their discounts, but Diamond hasn't been known as an innovator ever. Like uh, that, they were That's part of the problem with the monopoly, right? Is that you've got one distributor that has no competition. Mm. Uh, nobody thrives in the lack of competition, right? right. It's like, uh, if there isn't anyone coming up behind you, nipping at your heels, you have no reason to innovate. And right. Diamond has largely been business as usual for the last 25 plus years. The only thing I, I can th think right. of that they've really done to change their business was create Diamond Select Toys, which uh, I have a lot of friends who were at Art Asylum when I was there who have worked for Diamond Select Toys. I don't have anything bad to say about them, but it was, but that entire company was a reaction to DC Direct. So once again, DC was the one, and I remember their pitch meeting in the late 90s when we were at Art Asylum. They came to us and said, hey, the comic companies are going to is going to make their own toys and sell right. them in comic book stores. And we couldn't even wrap our heads around what that meant. Like, why? Wait, you're not well, going I, to produce for Toys R Us? But then two, three years later, Diamond does it, but it's right. already been done. And, and I, I think Diamond has always been about just maintaining the status quo. They yeah. always want things to stay the same because, uh, you know, at least in their eyes, they seem to be at like the the top of the chain with everything. But it's funny because if you really think about it, how how top of the pyramid can they possibly be when after only a week of comic shops closing, you know, for the most part across the country, after a week, they were already like, oh, we, we can't pay our publishers. Like, we right. can't afford to pay. Yeah. So they obviously don't have, like, <laughs> legitimate savings backed up where and they're then, still able to, you know. And that's true, like, around the corporate world through, you know, all over. Not just yeah. in comics, but all corporations. When all these corporations were filing for bankruptcy or closing or laying off employees, it's like, wait a second no major corporation has the funds to run six months. They right. don't have savings. You, right. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, <laughs> what? And, and that's because like they're, a, they're all based on projections. Everything's right. Right. Everything's nine months in the future. Disney was complaining in April. They were like, oh, we're, they just posted like $4 billion profit mm -hmm. for 2019. But by April, they were they were saying, oh, we're going to have to lay off people. Because, right, and that's... Because the parks were closed. It's like you could still right. buy product. You could still... You, they got 10 million subscribers to Disney Plus right away. But mm -hmm. because it didn't match what they had projected to earn, uh, it's a problem if people have to lose their job. Most well, that, companies run like that. That's why I always found it so hilarious when people... like You'll often see like Bleeding Cool, for example, will post whenever a comic shop closes or... Yeah needs to put up a GoFundMe to stay open or something. You always see these people come out of the woodwork to leave comments like, well, why don't you have savings? Why didn't you prepare for this? And it's like, no company does this. Like even these huge corporations who right. know what they're doing, they have the exact same position. I mean, like AMC and Cinemark, these giant uh, theater corporations are likely not going to make it through right. yeah, the pandemic. <laughs> they, can, I, they can make it through the end of the uh, summer and then they're going to have to start massive yep. closings. Right. Yep. And AMC keeps threatening to open and I'm like, and show what? Right. It's like yeah, right. going to go. Yeah. AMC is like diamonds. You're not producing any content. It's like, are you going to, are you going to show everybody Star Wars on every screen? Nobody, nobody's put a movie out into theaters. Right. Um, yeah, it's, again, like, I guess going back to um, the, the how all of this happened, 
I, I think the, the biggest problems is like, especially with these new distributors, there's so many unknowns about everything right now. Like people don't know when they're going to be able to reopen completely. Um, you know, they, they don't know with these new people, um, like, so first and foremost, there's no contracts. There's no written contract whatsoever. So they tell them, okay, you know, you're going to be able to keep the same discounts that you get from Diamond when you come over here, which sounds fine and dandy, but then they're saying like, okay, so there's no contract to guarantee that you need to submit all of your tax information to us, all of your sub counts, you know, your order quantities, all of this information, and you're not even given a total for what your shipment is going to cost until after it's shipped and you had basically promised to pay whatever the total amount is going to be. This is the so, new distributor? Yeah, these are both of the wow. new distributors. So UCS and Lunar. They charge by the box, but they don't have a set packaging standard. So they don't say, you know, here's how, much, how big a box is. They don't say how they pack them. The how size of the box, is. how heavy the pallets are, how many comics or weight per box on average. They don't give you any of that information. And again, the number one red flag for me is no contract. Yeah. There's no contract whatsoever for the percentages you're getting or anything. Um, it's just like, I don't mind them doing new distributors. I Honestly, I don't even necessarily mind them doing it through Midtown or whatever. Right. The problem Midtown, is that Midtown people don't know Midtown's handling all of Marvel and DC subscriptions. Yeah. So when you when you subscribe, for example, I Danny when you left Camaras and Stephen when you left Camaras, I started subscribing to Amazing Spider-Man because I didn't want it to stop, and I got um, invoices from Midtown, which yep. is most people know is three stores in Manhattan. They're all great. Paul who owns it, um, actually a good friend of mine. We used to visit him all the time. Uh, especially when I worked in the neighborhood and they had, they do a lot of stuff through their website, but they're actually the subscribing distributor for right. Marvel in DC. Right. I, I think the, the biggest thing was just like the announcement process of it too. So what happened was Diamond was in the process of renegotiating with, with all of their publishers, because right. at this point by not paying their bill, they effectively broke their previous contract, right? So yeah. they now were renegotiating with DC. DC asked very suddenly for an extension on their like time to consider this renegotiation. And then immediately after sent out letters to not even all comic book retailers, just their top accounts to say, hey, we're done with Diamond. Um, last weekend that last foc that you did on june 1st or whatever i think they announced this on like june 5th or 6th uh that last foc you did that's the last bit of diamond stuff that you're gonna get you now have to switch over to these new people and that's it so they've since like kind of edited that and they've changed it a little bit where now um, anything that Diamond has in stock currently past that FOC, you can still get. Um, and then I think Diamond UK is still going to be yeah. doing stuff until the end of like 2021 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're overseas. Or, or but but there was just, there was no time, no organization. Like it takes time to get a new account started with a distributor. Like yeah. you have to get a credit check. You have to set up uh, your terms and your contract with them, your percentages that you're getting. Like there's so much stuff that you have to do where most shop owners are already scrambling to keep the lights on and trying to keep everything running and keep it organized. In any especially, time. Yeah. Right. Not right. Any time at all. Where they've had to close. Right. Where they, they basically have had to say, I can't afford to pay my employees. So I have to sit here at the store doing this trying to keep things running, you know, now DC being like, oh, well, it's new comic Tuesday. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Because now I get to go get my stuff for distribution on Monday or uh, Wednesday morning. And then UPS drops it off Wednesday morning at like 11. So hopefully if you open by 12, you'll have enough time yeah. to get your, your other stuff out. Yeah. Yeah, I well, think remember another frustrating element of this is they want to change new comic book day into Tuesday. 
And that would be fine if Diamond said, okay, we'll do Tuesday too. But now you effectively have two new comic days a week. So you have to go to a warehouse to pick up point Monday to get your books for Tuesday. You have to check those books in on Monday and then have a new book day on Tuesday. But Tuesday, you also have to go to the Diamond Warehouse and pick up your books, check those in on Tuesday, which is also a new day where you're going to have new customers asking to buy comics that don't come out until tomorrow, Wednesday, and you have to check stuff in for that day. It's like you're, you're basically fucking every person who owns a comic book store, getting the books, checking them in, and getting them ready for Wednesday. That's a, the largest task right. that has to be done during the week. And every single Tuesday, I was checking in books. You had people coming in saying, oh, can I get my books early? Can I get my books a day early? Now, how hard is it going to be to, how many more people are going to be asking because yep. they're coming a day early to get the DC books? And they're like, well, I'm already here. Just sell me the Marvel stuff. Yeah. Right. Or, or people will come in on Wednesday when everything else comes out and you're completely sold out of DC stuff. Right. Because everyone walked in on Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> like, and this is the problem is that like comic book stores, because they operate on such a thin margin, you know, uh, no comic book store owner is a millionaire. You know, maybe some of the guys like Jamie Graham or the guy that runs Midtown are well to do because they've got other elements bringing in income. Like your regular, everyday, average comic book store owner is probably close to the poverty line, right? Yeah. You know, it's a labor of love for the most part. And these are people that, any any distrib- any um, interruption, anything that causes a problem at a high level way beyond the store owner's control is just the shit just completely rolls downhill. I well, mean, it's the weather, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. You're, a far- you're a farmer and the comic book companies and the distributors are the weather. Yes, yeah. it's absolutely that. And that's, I mean, that was a big problem. You know, this was, uh, I had this problem when I was working in a store then managing a store and then owning a store. And it's just like, I cannot imagine with everything else this year has brought in terms of the economic downturn, COVID closing businesses and all this, that stores are going to be able, I mean, it's just like, how on earth do comic book stores survive this kind of shit? Right. But so was- like Steve Jeppe had... Um, so he, he's probably given this speech like a billion times at different retailer summits and whatever. And like the guy's a hack, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the one smart thing that, uh, and there'll be an addendum to this, but the one smart thing that he's always said is to not make a comic shop about just a Wednesday. And I do believe in that philosophy. I think if you can find a way to make every single day that you are open for business be about something different, then that that's where your success lies. Right. So a lot of newer comic shops and younger comic shops are employing that kind of strategy. They're getting their graphic novels from you know other distributors and not Diamond mm-hmm. because there's returnability and all this other stuff. However, where I take issue with what Jeppy said is it's it's a little funny having that come out of his mouth when he has literally set up the industry for decades to be that way, to be Wednesday focused. So, you know, you saying that, yes, I get it. Like that's a really good philosophy to have, but it means absolutely nothing when all you've done is encourage all of your customers, your clientele, basically um, comic shops to focus on, hey, here's when this new comic comes out. It's got to come out on Wednesday. We're Wednesday warriors. You know. right. There's a huge benefit to having one day a week because it may, makes me think of when I found out there was a Wednesday, which was like the 90s. As a kid, I was just getting them on the newsstand whenever, and I didn't know what day they would put them up. And I don't think they had a day they put them up. But once I started working at like Bulletproof or visiting Bulletproof, I knew, I knew if I wanted a comic, I would show up on Wednesday and I would get it. But then when I would collect action figures, I'd go to Toys R Us and who knows? You'd hear right. that there were new X-Men figures and you know what? Here I am. They aren't here. I, I'll come back in a couple of days. I'll go to Target. I'll go to, and, the, and it's that whole hunt, which action figures still kind of have, even though it's online. There's a lot of stuff that it's like, it's like oh, the new say the Age of Apocalypse Marvel Legends. Oh, they're up on the Walmart site. They're not up on the Hasbro Plus Pulse site. They're at this target. They're not at this target. I don't think anybody wants to go back to that with comics. Right. But yeah, I do feel that, okay, you don't want to have this peak because every comic book store we, were, we worked at, it was Wednesday was like, sh- it was like show day. 
It was like working on Saturday Night Live and Wednesday and Saturday. Every, everything during the week is building up to that or coming down from it. Well, and that's why I think a lot of comic shops went the route of gaming stuff. You know, gaming was their other way to have these other days be, you know, okay, this is a Heroclix day. This is a Warhammer day. This is Magic the Gathering, whatever. Because those were great ways to, you know, potentially... Um, it potentially get to the point where you would have just as good of a day because of that new magic release or Pokemon release or whatever, as you would on a new comic Wednesday. But now so much about the gaming industry has evolved into the point where those margins are now razor thin and players expect the biggest discounts to even bother with you. It's not about community anymore. Everyone is just wanting the best possible price, like as a, a, a consumer rather than a retailer. So when you sit there and say, listen, this thing retails for $135, that's what I have to sell it at. Someone's like, well, I'm going to go, you know, a town over and get it for 110 because they've got a senior discount and they're willing to sell it to me. Right. Um, so now it's like you you barely even have that where these other days are that big of money makers. And I think that's kind of what we've seen and what the reporting that I've read about some of what's going to happen to retail at large after COVID is that, you know, at the end of this, we're going to have three retailers. You're going to have Amazon, you're going to have Walmart, you're going to have Costco because it's the you, mom and pop stores can't compete. You know, that's the big thing with, I mean, when John was telling me this was a couple of years ago, we were talking about in-stock trades and I'm like, well, how much are their discounts? And it's like, they're selling close to what our cost is on some of that stuff. It's they're not selling at yeah, cost. Like, but like, they take making- their biggest sellers release week and put them at 50% off of that week. Yes. But then everything else is 40% off. All right. The and right. I mean, we can't, the stores can't compete with that. And, you know, we, you're having trouble competing with Amazon and when the comics went digital, um, you know, you're just, as a store owner, you're just constantly running out of ways to try to turn a profit. Right. And now, now, remind me, Danny, you, when you said they wanted to move comic book Wednesday, they wanted to move, you said they wanted to move it to Tuesday? Yeah. So DC has made the decision that it's going to be new comic Tuesday. And the reason why is because that is in line with new releases in the book channels. Right. So, but, and not only book, but movies. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah there media. was a DVD market. All media is Tuesday. Right. New, new albums, new movies, new books right. Right. are all Tuesdays. Which, so you can see this as AT&T going like, wait, we're releasing all of this stuff on Tuesday, but comics we release on a Wednesday? Right. And and again, like there there are parts of their decision that I think are very smart. I think I, I think it's inevitable that things are moving towards the trade. And I it like it physically hurts my stomach and my heart to say that because I love single issue comics so so much and they're just like they're, they're just they've been a part of me since I was literally learning how to read is I, I read a newspaper with comics in it and then I went into single issue comics um, but unfortunately that's what the case is people don't want to wait you know like your general audience not just comic book readers the general audience doesn't want to wait for the next issue to come out they don't want to wait a week they are now uh, born and raised on this binge um, trend, yeah. like Netflix and stuff like that. They want it all at once. So, you know, for them, uh, you know, they they want to just go and get the graphic novel. They're, they're oh, well, you know, the issues are coming out right now, but you said six months from now the trade will be out. Eh, I'll just wait for the trade. So I, I get why, um, you know, AT&T and Warner are doing what they're doing. Um, I think it's smart in terms of longevity and, and it's going to make them way more money. I totally get that. The, the biggest problem I have is just it's, it's one of the shittiest things you could possibly do to the industry that basically helped build these characters and these brands up to where they are right now. Because if you didn't have comic shop retailers, if you didn't have people in that community who genuinely loved Superman and loved Iron Man and loved these characters enough to take five minutes to tell a kid who's looking for reading recommendations, like, oh, you should read this. Oh, you should read this. Like, if they didn't take the time and energy to do that and have those razor thin 
profit margins. Like we wouldn't have the MCU right now. We wouldn't have the Dark Knight movies. We wouldn't have any of that stuff. Right. Um, Although to that point, no. to, ca- to counterpoint that, as much as I agree with you, when the 90s, when all the comic companies stopped newsstand distribution, everybody said, that's insane. You're going to lose all the casual fans. And they did, but you look today, there aren't newsstands anyway. It's like, what, right. it made me think, when, Danny, when you said I started reading comic strips and newspapers, I was like, oh, good luck finding a newspaper. So with, right. the, with the monthly issue going away, as much as I also love the monthly issue, maybe it might make more sense for the trade. There's no, there's no real continuity between books anymore unless there's an event. Every time a new creative team comes on a book, they relaunch it with a number one. Right. So it's not like you have to come in month in, month out to know what's going on with this character. Right. So, and, and that's, and that's exactly... the Japanese market is just, hey, oh, yeah. hey, this year we're doing another graphic novel on this character. And since these major companies own these characters, well, we'll have four or five different different creative teams just doing books and we could still put out a book every month. Right. Well, and see, and the difference with the Japanese market is they, they don't put out a single issue of manga. They put out what are called jumps and Shonen Jump and Shoujo Jump is basically a, a, it's a book that costs probably about five or six us dollars right now. And that book is about that thick and contains single issues or single chapters of a manga. And it's probably, God, like at this point, they probably have almost 20 different series per book. Right. So they put out jumps uh, once a month and the, they sell like bonkers because they're affordable. They're printed on cheap paper um, and they get people addicted to it and then they go and buy the manga volumes. So that you could say arguably makes a little bit more sense because you're spending instead of $4 for a single issue of one series, you're getting 20 different series, completely different styles and creators, some of the top talent in the industry for the same price and you're getting it you know, once a month, which is affordable. You're not suddenly being like, okay, I have to spend $4.99 per single issue. If I'm sub to 20 books, like it just gets atrocious to try and afford. Right. Um, and that's and that's the whole problem I'm having now. Uh every now and then I realize, oh, a new issue is gonna cost me $3.99. Yeah. And you know, I could I could be a I could be a grumpy old fan and say, Oh, it's 60 cents in my day. Uh <laughs> and that's fine because it was also in a newsstand where everything was on print, where they were 50 daily newspapers and magazines on every single interest you could imagine. Though those are all digital now. One of yeah. the things that I think uh, where Diamond really mis- misstepped in trying to maintain the status quo was they had the opportunity to build Comixology 10 years ago and yep. they didn't see the value in it. And now who owns digital comics? Amazon does. Yeah. And, yeah. and I go to their website three times a week and it's like, hey, we have a Right now, there's a Joker sale because Joker's 80th anniversary came out. Uh, Joker's 80th anniversary is a single issue that costs $10. Yep. Comixology is selling Joker trades for $5 this week. Yep. So you can buy the best of Joker. You can buy Batman White Knight. You can buy um, Harley Loves Joker for 5 bucks for 150 pages. Right. And, you know, I've been talking about this a lot. I have a, I have a really nice iPad with a retina screen. So the art is going to look just as clear as if I bought the physical book and it's going to cost me a fraction less. And you know what? The last three months, I haven't been able to go into a comic book store. And, it's yep. just, and I think, I think I that think was part the big... of the decision on I, yeah. their part. I think, I think COVID was a last straw in a lot of yeah. ways for DC was they've been planning on doing this. Remember, they were also the ones pushing to reopen the strongest. Marvel was yeah. saying, hey, we're not going to put anything out. And DC's like, screw you, we are. And they were pumping out trades while Marvel wasn't even putting out trades of old content. They didn't even right. have guys working. They had penciled down orders across. Yeah, and, and you'll hear a lot of uh, comic shop owners now actually saying that normally they're very, um, they're very happy to kind of shit on Marvel because of all the stupid incentive programs for variants and stuff that they do, right. which hurt the industry. Right. Um, 
right now they're actually saying like Marvel's probably doing the best thing for us by like staggering their releases because at least now we can afford our invoices. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, man. and like the, the thing with Amazon too is they could sell things for a penny and they would still make all of their money back and then some with Amazon prime memberships. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they have comiXology unlimited memberships now, which is a separate membership, which I pay for because they have a rotating library of probably about 30, 40% of their catalog, which by the way, is everything that's ever been in print since 2012. Mm -hmm. So when they put it, say they put out a trade of project Pegasus from Marvel two and one in the seventies, they put that trade out digitally and they break it up and they throw all the issues in Marvel two and one. So you'll find holes, but uh, Comicsology Unlimited will give me like 40% of that to just add to my list. Like I was watching the uh, Doom Patrol on DC Universe and it didn't make any sense to me. And I was, I was like, you know what? I need to read the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol. It's all on Comicsology Unlimited. So I read seven trades for free in a week and then yep. went right back in. It's unless you really want to keep it. And honestly, so many people talk about, oh, well, I love the paper and I love to hold it. And it's, I get that. And I think those are the people where things like artist editions are made for or facsimile editions, but that's not the majority of fans anymore. That's always been right. a niche. Yeah. Fan. And that's, and that's why I say very much like it, it hurts me to say it because I am one of those like niche people I like. And, and it's honestly true of everything, movies, video games, all of the media that I consume, I like to get physical copies of because I like how it looks on a shelf. I like to actually hold it when I'm reading the book or, you know, whatever. But I- yeah, I got to the point where there were too many shelves. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you like, know what? The other thing you have too- <laughs> The other thing you have too is now you just have heavy omnibuses. So you're sitting there like- yeah. Oh, like this 80 pound book in your lap. <laughs> oh, I've been sell I've been selling some omnibuses and, and thank God for media mail, or I would be paying oh. twice what the omnibus was worth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. These things yeah. can be 10 pounds. And yep. I learned that lesson really early on, and it was not with a comic book, but I was flying I was from, flying from Chicago to New York, and it was when Keith Richards autobiography came out, which was really entertaining, but it was twelve hundred pages and it it was in a hardcover. And I was outside the Hudson books in the in LaGuardia and uh, O'Hare. And I was like, oh, I want to read that book. It'd be perfect to read on the flight. I'm like, I don't think I have room in my backpack with my clothes <laughs> for a book like that. I was like, but I do have my iPad and just bought it on Kindle. And that just flipped the switch where I was yeah. like, oh, there's no space involved. There's no weight involved. I mean, and that's one of the reasons Comixology can create these deep discounts because it's not even a download unless you say I'm going to download it. All they're doing is giving you permission. So it's right. like, you want, you want Batman white Knight for $5. All right. For $5, we're giving you access. Right. It's, it's so simple. And diamond again, it kills me because 2006, 2007, there were proposals to diamond about, Hey, this is how we should do digital comics. And you're in a, the perfect situation because you have relationships with all these publishers and they were like, oh, we're not that interested. And then yeah. Amazon's like, yeah, but we are. Yeah. yeah it's like, I, I what think they think was going to happen. Right. And I think yeah. we'll kind of see is, you know, the industry's changing kind of all the time slowly. It's like, sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's quick, like the last couple months. And I think uh, there is always going to be comics. Comics aren't going anywhere. There's always going to be new material printed with Superman and Spider-Man and Batman and everybody else. But it's like, yeah, the, but comic book stores might not. Be yeah, a, the, the, right. I think know? the the collectible market won't let physical goods die because right. there's so much money to be made. And honestly, even on current issues, you know, I mean, there are books that just released last week that are now going for hundreds of dollars there's some it's very rare that this happens but there are some books that came out only a few months ago or a year ago that are still selling for hundreds or thousands of dollars yeah uh batman you know. it's not even I, I stopped reading batman after the tom king run and in the second issue of james tinian's run they introduced this character named punchline who i don't know yeah. who he is don't really care but his first appearance is already going. It, it's room. basically Joker's new girlfriend, is punchline. Yeah, so it's Harley Quinn. Um, it's like it's like Joker's daughter. Yeah, basically. when that was a big thing in the New Fifty Two. They'll yeah. they'll always be that, and I agree with you. I think there'll always be a place for physical media. Whether there is a place for brick and mortar stores, I don't know because uh, yeah. Amazon is doing a ton of shipping 
people things in boxes. Yep. And yep. they're not using Diamond. So um, shifting from the future of the industry to the history in the industry, the other thing that happened this week was Denny O'Neill passed away. Uh, natural causes, not COVID related as far as we know at 81. And Denny, if you don't know, Denny was one of the most legendary people in the industry. He was never took a superstar status like a Stan Lee or a Jack Kirby, but he had more to do with bring with the bronze age, um, which is the seventies than anybody else. We would not have comics the way we have them without. Yeah. He wrote and the- he's part of that first generation of, comic book creators who got into comics because they wanted to be in comics. Yeah, but yeah. also as important, he was a journalist. Yes. So his background was writing for newspapers, so he brought this hard-boiled, realistic edge to some of his characters. And uh, he was one of those people where I kept saying, ah, I'm going to send him an email and ask him on the podcast. But I didn't have a relationship with him, and then it just, I probably I mean, should have been a little more courageous about it. He, he was always on- had uh, a, a presence, like, even if not uh, like outside of comics, he was always still um, participating in the health of the comics industry. Yeah. Like he was on the board of directors for uh, the Hero Initiative um, right, right up until when he died. So, I mean, he's always been proactive and out there and trying to like support, especially some of these classic creators that now get overlooked by these companies right. and have health bills and stuff like that. Yeah, well, he was always ultra liberal, ultra left leaning and um, always looked out for the little guy. And uh, there were two major things he did that really showcased that there was, first of all, he was the creator of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which um, well, Green Lantern was bombing. Green Arrow didn't have a book. If DC was like, they're both green, throw them together. <laughs> and he and Neil Adams turned that book yeah. to the ultimate like hippies liberal 60s book, which then the entire comics company revolved around. And that was successful enough that they put them on Batman and he was, they weren't doing ultra liberal socially conscious stories on Batman. In fact, they went back to like old castles and, um, and gangsters, but they made that turn from the Adam West. They f- basically yeah. followed Adam West getting canceled and created the dark Knight detective, which was blending the 30s and 40s sensibility with more of the realism. Yeah. Uh, his writing was fantastic, but also he was the editor of Batman for most of the big things that happened in Batman's life. He uh, was editor from 85 to 2000, and that is a period that sees The Dark Knight Returns, the Tim Burton movies, Batman the Animated Series, and then his own initiatives like The Death of Robin, Nightfall, No Man's Land. Uh, these were all incredible stories. And even though he was ultra left-leaning, uh, I've introduced Chuck, Chuck Dixon a few times on the show, and I really like him as ultra-right as he is, and I am not. I did ask him once, like, what was it like working with Denny, who was so left, and you, you, you're so right, and this is something that today would never happen. And he's like, we never talk politics, because we talked about Batman. Yeah. And you could see that Chuck brought in this, like, hard-boiled detective, but it was very right-leaning was very good guys bad guys you know batman's a good guy penguin's a bad guy and there were much more shades of gray to denny where denny was denny did a lot of things where it was like oh this mom is stealing but it turns out she's trying to feed her kids yeah it was a deeper observation of the villain archetype rather than just saying they're just evil they just do evil things and like i created a platform where both of those could exist in the same publishing schedule much less with the same character yeah yeah because if you think about it like if you look at you know there there is room in comics for both your joker character that is strictly evil there is no reasoning behind what he's doing he's just an evil motherfucker like there's room for someone like him versus someone like um you know uh like mr freeze who he has these background motives where all he cares about is Nora and just, I have to save her. I have to find a way to get her back. I, I, and, and anybody can relate to that idea of just not wanting to give up on someone you love. Well, so, the most major villain that Daniel O'Neill created is Rachel Ghoul, who when yeah. you dig a little deeper, he's all about environmental rights and about uh, overpopulation. 
which yeah. is like, and his his he's got a Thanos solution of like, well, right. we'll kill everybody right. but me and my daughter and you, Batman. But but right, but, but, it but is, he's but he's got he's, a he's like Magneto. He has a motive that makes sense. Yeah, he's got duality because on the surface he seems to be one of those. He's just plain evil for evil's sake, but he also has some of that stuff teeming below the surface. That's frankly much more interesting. Yeah, and you know, uh, people forget about his Marvel work. Uh, yeah. he, he's known for, for being at DC and as I said, two amazing periods from the sixties to seventies. And then again, as an editor, um, and a writer in his own right, he did his, uh, run of the question with Dennis Cohen is amazing. He did all, uh, all 100 issues of Azrael. Um, he kept that character going when nobody saw a potential in him, but he had this period in between at Marvel. And when he was at Marvel, he wrote Amazing Spider-Man for a while. He created Hydra-Man. Um, but people overlook his biggest contribution to, I think, Marvel history is he took Rhodey, who was a character that was created by Leighton and Michelini, as a side character and put him in the armor, which not only was the first time someone other than Tony Stark was Iron Man for a consistent amount of time um, and certainly leaned into his left leaning of like, well, Iron Man's a blue-collar black guy. He's a guy who was a Vietnam pilot and a mechanic um, but it also created war machine who's a character that exists today who's been played by two actors in the mcu right and that's with, and um, that's the guy who created rachel ghoul like and he did john stewart too you know that was the that's right yeah dc character an african in the green lantern great hour run yeah without who, the name black in his name yes yeah you know, all... and it's like and John Stewart's arguably the second most popular Green Lantern behind Hal, and a lot of kids growing up yep. in the early two thousands, that's their Green Lantern. He was on I was Justice say, League. Yeah, yeah, yeah arguably so. He's now one of the right. the the single most popular because of Justice League Definitely. animated. Yeah. And I think that's something else with Justice League is like Danny O'Neill's the guy that got rid of like. Snapper Carr, the sidekick, and he put the Justice League in a satellite yeah. out of yeah, a cave. Good, good Justice League issues. Yeah, it's like a lot of the stuff that we, that I grew up with Super Friends and then later with Justice League, how people think of the Justice League is this big group of heroes in a satellite above Earth, and like, that's Danny O'Neill did all that stuff, you know, he's the one that kind of gave it that larger than life aspect yeah. that, you know, we might not have gotten otherwise, and then there's yeah. the adorable, uh, reimagining of wonder woman that he right tried. which he hated <laughs> he, and, but you know what it's worth a read like they put it out in trades about 10 years ago yeah and i, and I read him and i'm like I, I see where you're going these aren't he, he tried <laughs> he yeah. tried it's not the yeah. worst thing you know, no yeah. it's a direction that you could see them abandoning and going back to the classic but it's not they're not bad comics right yeah. he well yeah and I, I it's like uh i think i i i haven't read too many of them i've, I've you know dabbled in it but his um he was in. He's he was one of those guys that's like interviewed extensively when they do like comic documentaries and stuff, right. and uh, he's great. And uh, they did the. Um, I think it's called Secret Origin. It's a DC. Oh, some of those are amazing. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And he's interviewed in that, and they do a segment where they talk about Wonder Woman, and, and he he does try to explain like, here's what my thinking is, mm -hmm. and then kind of showing like, hey, I really missed the ball at this time of like feminist um cultural revolution or whatever and uh he tried it you know yeah. it's like he means well his yeah. his prose writing was so strong coming from a journalist background like i love his comics and um i i love how he preserves the different voices of characters which is one of the things that made him a good editor but uh one of the things i really loved about him was he would write a column when he, any book he was editing he write a column called from the den and the stories there were so personal. It was like reading Jimmy Breslin or like uh, Chuck Klosterman later. It was like you were learning about this journalist. You were learning about his daily life in a really intimate way. And he would just throw it in the back of a comic. I think he was editor of G.I. Joe, like when Larry Hama was writing him. And that was the first time I saw him in there because uh, that was in Marvel in the early 80s. Yeah. But he was like, he wasn't afraid to kind of let you in. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to take chances. The, the famous story about No Man's Land, which is I, probably the best long event of in Batman's history. That book was an entire year, every single Batman book from January to January. That's and crazy. There were subplots that ran through it, but and it built and it ended well. Uh, 
there was a famous story that Jordan Garfinkel was his assistant editor at the time, walked in with the pitch and went, you're going to hate this and dropped it on his desk. And Denny read it and was like, yeah, let's just do that. Let's just do it for a year. And now it's, you know, one of the components that's in Dark Knight Rises and it's one of the high watermarks of Denny's career. And I think the, the fact that he was such a humanist that he tried to understand where people were coming from, what their motivations were, what their needs were and how they were being met, not only made him a great storyteller because he was a great observer of humanity, but it made him a great collaborator. Yeah. You know, there's well, so and, many and people he, that get, they get the credit for the stories and then you see that Denny was a part of that. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to talk about very human things that like, especially like in terms of comics and the comics code authority and all of that, you know, I mean, even like Speedy's habit, being yep. talked about in in that series like that's stuff that it's really tricky to touch that unless it's a side character it's just some random civilian that this hero has run into to say don't do drugs let me get you the help that you need it's actually a hero who is put into this position and suddenly right. you have to stop and say like okay wow like so these are people that go through these same things that you know anybody else could and Denny, right that's now. a perfect example because around the same time stan did it in spider-man yeah. yeah when he made harry a drug addict and it's not as effective it's yeah. not, right. a, well, not so a bad story by any imagination it's not a low point for the series but it does not compare right yeah I especially guess, to uh, the way neil adams did that cover with, well then i guess that's what happened was that the marvel did it first they did their drug issue and then um Neil Adams claims that he went in with the cover drawn and said, this should be our next issue and that they, they ran with it. And, you know, Denny O'Neill obviously wrote that issue and had a hand at it. And I think it was much more effective when those two did it, but it just kind of shows is that it's not, I think to Danny's point is that it's, it's, you know, they did the drug issue where there was like the guy on the roof that Spider-Man saves cause yeah. he's on drugs and he's just like a citizen. And then Harry's yeah. a villain and he's on drugs. This is like, here's the kid, the guy's sidekick. He's a hero. And he, it shows even like heroes make mistakes and they're human and all that good stuff. Right. Well, also um, that story is so much, kind of that story is so much told from Green Arrow's perspective of him taking responsibility for not being there and blaming himself for this problem. Yeah. Where Spider-Man right. just, Spider-Man shakes down the dealer. And yeah, then, and yeah, then they and then they watch. Um, I mean, Gil Kane drew the issues. I'm not going to say they're bad issues, but like yeah. it, it's Harry taking some kind of pills and then rolling around in a hospital bed. Yeah, I don't think Stan Lee knows anything about drugs. He said yeah, he I didn't mean, know like, what they were. He's like, people. He's like, I'm taking pills, dumb, and right? Now and I'm high other, as a kite. The other thing that you have to think of too is that Stan Lee did it as a request from the U.S. government right. to put yeah. out that message. Yeah. So it was only it was only ever a commercial it was for commercial purposes yeah it was say. an anti-drug message right, right. And then I which think is hilarious because of the you know the comics code authority being in place being like you can't do that it's the government right. saying you and can't it was do that. <laughs> um, yeah that that's that sums up half of my career in advertising like it's a, <laughs> this product will help you not have this problem you can't talk about that problem but we're saying you won't have it anymore right so you yeah can't we're talk literally about trying and what to help. does this thing do <laughs> like, don't yeah, say but, drugs i'm saying don't do drugs say don't do right right but then you know from like from denny's point like when he when he was writing those issues it's like it, again just like you said steve it's very much like it's the human aspect across the board so it's a hero going through this or a hero sidekick going through this the hero going through what families normally do when they find out you know that they need to do an intervention or something with their family member or friend like all the guilt and thinking of like like this is all the human experience rather than the government through spider-man as a talking head saying don't right it was a message like, yeah, yeah. And it, it goes back to the journalistic standpoint right it's like looking for that human element in all the characters and i think um you know that's something that i think he kind of did throughout his career um and i agree with john i think it's the that guy had a bigger hand i think in building the bronze age of comics which obviously led to what comics look like today than a lot of people maybe give him credit for and you know he's not a household name like um you know stanley is but i right. do think it's something where it's like um i mean yeah well, i mean it's like uh, like len ween a couple years ago and you know yeah. some other folks 
that have passed away recently is just like we're seeing that it's that first generation these guys are the guys that wanted to do comics and yes. you know uh the marv wolfman generation um you know these are these are guys where it's just like uh the, they were real fans you know marv wolfman's yeah. becoming our elder statement i think it's like marv wolfman yeah. and roy thomas or, or neil i mean neil adams but yeah. a lot of those guys are, are starting to go i think uh the one thing that sticks out with things being what they are today, a lot of people, um, when Denny died, they posted those three panels of Green Lantern, Green Arrow of um, the African The elder black man. man. Yeah, saying oh, yeah. like, I, I saw you help the blue skins and I saw you help the orange skins. He's like, what have you done for the, the brown skins? And um, that, was, that was so powerful to me. And then I saw the backlash of that for people going like, what did I do for the brown skins? I saved the earth a million times. And I was like, yeah, okay, I see your point. But then the more I thought about it, that's Denny going like, we're not going to talk about him saving the earth. Right that's now. literally we're like saying all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter. It is matter. the all lives matter, like, right? yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Sinestro didn't kill us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah, but it is like, let's, let's stop all this. Let's get down one-to-one and let's look each other in the eye. And I don't know anybody that was writing like that before. And Denny started out as Stan's assistant. Like yeah. he started in Marvel, I he wasn't writing very much, but he like learned the comics business from Stan and took it that one step further. And yeah, I think maybe it's because Denny didn't create characters. I'm finding as I get older that uh, who you're known for are the characters you created and Denny created Rachel Ghoul and Hydro Man. John Stewart. Um, and John Stewart. Um, who, but he didn't create a book. Like, like Stan Lee created Spider-Man. Right. You know? So I think it's a little, it's a, he's a little more of a deeper cut, but I, I, I feel bad about my own shyness. I saw him at several conventions, just kind of walking around and his wife was as old as he was and they were arm in arm at C2E2. And I, it was, they were, they looked so of their place that I both wanted to, to step in and get to know them. And I, also didn't want to ruin that moment so i yeah. never actually i had so many opportunities to talk to denny o'neill and he was he's he was a personal hero of mine in comics and i never got over myself enough to talk to him um, what i guess what i would say is that at least on a positive note is that you got to see that humanity in person whether or not you were able to directly interact there are so many people that you know, they want to meet their heroes or even just get a glimpse of them and they never get the chance to do that. There's yeah. people that can't afford to go to a con one convention, let alone a bunch of conventions and see them multiple times. So True. it's, um, it, you know, like, I, cause I kind of have that too, where uh, right around when Stan Lee died, like I definitely had that sort of conflicted thing where it was like, I really, really respect what he did for the industry, but then there was also the, like, eh, he wasn't a great person, like, mm -hmm. they didn't do the best things all the time, but, like, at C2E2, I passed him by once in a crowd, and I remember, like, right around when Stan Lee passed, I kept thinking, like, God, that's so stupid, like, why didn't I go try to, like, say hi, why didn't I... Um, go to a signing yeah. or go to this or whatever but honestly like it just the more I thought about it and the longer away from his death that I got the more I just thought about like not everybody gets to say that they like walked by in a crowd and got a quick wave with the person you yeah. know yeah um, I so, waved I waved and made eye contact in 96 yeah, like a, so see, you already in Philly, uh, but I didn't yeah. talk to him. You already yeah, got a heart to heart connection without yeah. having to say anything, and that's why we know Elliot because Elliot got to interview him on a panel. Oh, cool! And I complimented him on his interviewing skills, and then he's been on like 25 times. Yeah, yeah. yeah my so only I interaction with Stanley is through his bodyguard, who I was on my way to the bathroom at <laughs> E2E2. And I wasn't really like looking where I was going, and I just saw this massive hand come and just <laughs> hand on my chest, and it didn't even stop. It just moved me as if I was like a feather in the wind, <laughs> and I was like, "What the hell is happening?" And uh, I was like, "Oh, like, it doesn't Stanley's even hurt. I'm just gone." <laughs> I was like floating like away. I've never, I've never experienced that. And uh, see, that's Stanley, one of the reasons. Like an army of bodyguards. That's one of the reasons San Diego is canceled this year is because those giant bodyguards have to touch a thousand people to get them out of the way. Of the <laughs> yeah, gloves won't yeah. do them enough. Yeah, they, 
So COVID I would mitts. recommend um, the obvious things for uh, if you want to read Denny O'Neill. Green Lantern, Green Arrow, I think we all agree, is um, absolutely needs to be read from a comic history perspective. Yeah, um, especially are- with these current political times. I think uh, anyone who says comics shouldn't be political is a fucking moron because yeah. they always have been political and that book more than most. Uh, I mean, it, not just the uh, r- racial issues that was going on in that book, but that book kind of covered a lot. It was really like kind of like a journey yeah. across America book. And each issue is um, different. Each issue like covers a different issue. It really does. Um, so kudos issue, to issues covering issues. That makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but Neil Adams knocks it out of the park. It's probably their best work. Their Batman stuff is great. If you get Batman illustrated by Neil Adams, you'll see the best Denny stuff in there. Uh, they don't really have a run, which surprised me when I got those books. It was like, Neil was never that here fast. So it, it's a lot of done in ones and it's like, this is an issue of Batman and here's the next one's an issue of Detective two months later. And then the next one's an issue of Batman and it's next week. Um, so it's not like you're reading a run by them, but uh, the laugh and um, Joker's Five Wheel Revenge is in there, which is a great one. Um, and of course, anything with Rachel Ghoul is fantastic, but I would also like, uh, just take a look if, at- If you've never read The Shadow, by him with uh, oh, yeah. uh Mike Michael Kaluta. Mike Kaluta no yeah. but I have That's read the qu- I have read the question with Dennis Cohen yeah. yes I've never read that my buddy Ken always talks about the question I right don't like, know that I don't know that they're in trade I ended up buying the run on eBay and yeah. so, so like, and sitting down and reading it and it's it's really good because he also loved that film noir like he turned the question into the spirit like yeah. it's got that Will Eisner feel to it the the question like it, it was definitely the spirit but it was um, a little bit angstier the way that yeah. Rorschach kind of is, I guess. Yeah, and it's um, also like the beginning of Vertigo. You could see he was using yeah. the question to kind of write in the way that like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore were writing, which was the reason an imprint was created for that style. Yep. So it's it's really Denny writing uh, Vertigo comic. Yeah, yeah. The, the trades for the question are out of print. Yeah. I think they're working on reprinting them. Yeah, uh, I think just because he was starting to get popular anyway. And I right. wouldn't surprise if now, I mean, they they did that when uh, years ago when we had Norm Brayfogle on, they put out the Legends of the Dark Knight hardcover because mm-hmm. they knew he was ill and they knew, right. they knew he could make money and, and he'd be popular enough to sell. I wouldn't be surprised if we see, they were planning... Um, a Tales of the Demon hardcover with all the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff. There's also a great trilogy uh, that Denny wrote some, Mike W. Barr and Denny worked on, which was like Birth of the Demon, Bride of the Demon. Uh, I forget what the other one is called. Like, no, Son of the Demon. Son of the Demon is where um, Damien comes from. Son of the Demon, Bride of the Demon, and Birth of the Demon. Mike W. Barr writes a lot of that, and Denny's clearly on top of that. Norm Brayfuggle does Birth. Yeah, but there's there's a lot. I mean, honestly, if you do a Batman search, you're gonna see the name Denny O'Neill come up very very quickly. Either as an editor or as a writer, his name anywhere near it means it's a worthy comic to be read. Yeah. Oh well, how can we find everybody online? Uh, I'm House Diz across everything. H A U S D I S. Uh, uh, Stephen. You can find me on Instagram at the Brave Butter Pecan. Either it sounded like you were having a digital stroke there. I think it's digital, it yeah. And you oh, the Brave I got internet. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to walk you down a ramp and use two hands to drink water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Not of My Book on Twitter and Instagram. That's the as close as we have to an official Captain of the Comics feed. Um, you can also find the page on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and you can go to readingmisfits.com and click on the lifestyle tab. Uh, we're here every week, even though nobody's leaving their house, and, uh, but we will definitely talk to you next week.